Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. According to the latest estimates from the World Health Organization, an outbreak of Ebola in the Democratic Republic of Congo has killed over 1,400 people. This makes it the second worst Ebola outbreak in history, following the 2014 outbreak in West Africa that killed over 11,000 people. The current outbreak in the DRC is so far confined to the eastern part of the country, which has long been beset by insecurity and violence. There were, however, two cases reported over the border in Uganda from a family that contracted the disease while attending a funeral in the DRC. This marked the first time that this outbreak crossed an international border, which brought this long festering Ebola outbreak back into the news. On the line today to discuss some of the international efforts to halt the spread of Ebola is Ambassador John E. Lang. He is a retired U.S. ambassador and currently serves as the Senior Fellow for Global Health Diplomacy at the United Nations Foundation. We kick off discussing why this outbreak has been so hard to contain and then have a broader conversation about the strategies the international community, including the World Health Organization, are using to halt this outbreak. A few things stand out from our conversation, including how the WHO is using some of its lessons learned from the West Africa outbreak and applying them to the current situation in DRC, and also how a funding gap may be imperiling efforts to halt the spread of this outbreak. If you've not been following the trajectory of this outbreak, uh, this is a really good entry point into understanding both the current state of play of the outbreak, how it's evolved, and what needs to be done to finally bring it to heal. A couple of quick notes before we begin. The bonus episode that I've posted this week for premium subscribers is my conversation with Admiral James Stavridis, who is the former Supreme Allied Commander of Europe, that's the top NATO military official, and former Dean of the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy. And he discusses his career as the sort of quintessential warrior scholar. It was a fascinating conversation available to premium subscribers. If you would like to unlock that episode and now my 10 or 11 bonus episodes that I've posted with foreign affairs leaders who have discussed with me their life and career, you can do so using the button on globaldispatchespodcast.com or going to patreon.com slash globaldispatches or following the link in the description field of this podcast episode. You'll unlock those bonus episodes as well as access to my daily global news clips service, Dawn's Digest. So become a premium subscriber to unlock access to all those rewards. And now here is my conversation with Ambassador John Lang, Senior Fellow for Global Health Diplomacy at the United Nations Foundation. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? 
Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. The outbreak that's currently going on in the Democratic Republic of the Congo actually began on August 1st of last year, uh, and it has not been possible to uh, get it uh, totally under control and the number of cases down to zero for two main reasons. One is insecurity in that particular area in North Kivu and Eastern uh, DRC, and the other one is to get community acceptance of the changes in burial practices and other uh, factors that need to be done in order to bring the outbreak under control. But the insecurity is really what's almost unprecedented. According to WHO, there have been 174 attacks on health care since January 1st of this year, and they've resulted in five deaths and 51 injuries of healthcare workers and patients. Yeah, I mean, this includes like the murder uh, a month or a month and a half ago of, of a doctor in the DRC who was, you know, on the front lines, torching of, of health offices and Ebola treatment centers. Exactly. There, they, there have been um, uh, different ways in which these attacks have occurred, and it's uh, a very uh, a, difficult and tumultuous situation in terms of the uh, uh, the different uh, factions of groups that are uh, uh, involved because, uh, sad to say, the Democratic Republic of the Congo doesn't have uh, full control over every district uh, in uh, that part of the country. And of course, you also mentioned this challenge of getting communities uh, in Ebola-affected areas to work with or cooperate with uh, health officials. Can you talk a little bit about what those challenges are and why that sort of key element of community buy-in has been so lacking so far? Yes, it's... um... Uh, it, it, it is a very difficult situation, and, and we saw some of this back in 2014 when there was the Ebola outbreak in West Africa, which involved uh, Sierra Leone, Guinea, and uh, Liberia. And uh, there are certain normal community practices uh, that uh, will be uh, followed, and that includes things like uh, touching uh, the, the body of a, a dead loved one. But doing that can actually cause the disease to spread, so it really has to end uh, in order to uh, stop the spread of uh, Ebola. Uh, and uh, there are also uh, issues in which uh, when you take someone to an Ebola treatment center, they're separated from their loved ones. Uh, and uh, I think in the natural tendency of anyone in the world would be to be close to their loved one uh, when they're uh, very sick and possibly dying. And yet you have to keep them separate if you're going to uh, treat them for their Ebola and if they're going to be able to survive it and not pass it on to others. And so those uh, are sometimes very difficult, and it's not the kind of thing where you just can uh, do this uh, 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 explanation in advance to community after community and and parts of the world where Ebola could uh, 
break out. Instead, you have to deal with it once uh, e- Ebola does uh, break out in a particular situation. So the, the communities are very important here, and they're, they tend to be focused on their community needs, not so much what the government wants them to do. And uh, therefore, uh, for the World Health Organization and others who are working in this environment to have to do is to really uh, work closely with the community leaders themselves in order to uh, uh, bring about the changes that are required. Uh, so you, you mentioned uh, the 2014 outbreak in, in West Africa. And I'd like uh, to go back and, and sort of discuss some comparisons uh, like in, as to how the World Health Organization approached that and how the broader international community approached that outbreak, which was, you know, both international and at a scale currently of, you know, about 10 times worse in terms of number of people killed and, uh, and, and infected as the current outbreak. What are some of the sort of similarities and differences you're seeing in how the international community is responding to this current outbreak in DRC as compared to uh, the 2014 outbreak in West Africa? I think it's almost totally different. Um, uh, I have been a, a close follower of the World Health Organization for many years. Uh, I was a member of the U.S. delegation beginning back in 2007 and then uh, later uh, have been uh, attending uh, uh, the World Health Assembly, uh, which takes place each May, uh, representing uh, non-governmental uh, organizations. And uh, really prior to 2014, WHO was not expected to have a very strong and robust emergency response capacity. And then when the Ebola outbreak occurred uh, and it really uh, became a a huge uh, issue in August of 2014, uh, it was clear that the world needed a stronger emergency response capability. WHO was slow to respond. The international community was slow to respond. And Ebola really got out of hand, uh, as you pointed out. Since then, there have been major changes, first under the Director General Margaret Chan at WHO, now under the Director General uh, Dr. Tedros uh, at WHO, uh, to really uh, give WHO a robust emergency preparedness and response capability. Can can I just stop you there? Can can you just sort of describe how that is being manifest on the ground right now in the DRC, that those changes? Yeah. Yes, it's really amazing. First of all, they have an assistant director general, the one in charge of emergency response, who's now based in the DRC. He's that, that's where he's actually working out of, which was not the kind of thing that WHO would have done back in 2014. Uh, they also have uh, something like 670 people on the ground working there. Uh, and uh, Dr. Tedros himself, the Director General, just Saturday was uh, uh, in uh, uh, Butembo uh, in the DRC. Uh, he's visited there several times during this to, to uh, point out, uh, the, the, to put a focus on the needs, to point out that WHO needs the funding uh, to be able to meet those needs, uh, and to uh, uh, boost the morale of the people who are working so hard there in what is really quite a dangerous situation. So this is just the highest level of support that WHO can give. And just yesterday, the Secretary of Health and Human Services, Dr. Alex Azar of the U.S. government, was at a speech he gave to the U.S. Global Leadership Coalition, was speaking very positively and very highly about the response that Dr. Tedros and the World Health Organization have 
done in this regard. So it's really been a situation where, uh, uh, from my perspective, having followed this so closely and having uh, seen the changes structurally that WHO has made to give itself a robust emergency preparedness response capacity, uh, it's really been heartening to see how uh, WHO has uh, really gone all out to try to stop this outbreak in very challenging circumstances. And and this also includes a, a key innovation of the vaccine, right, which was not as widely available or available really at all in the early stages of the 2014 uh, outbreak in West Africa. Can, can you talk a, a little bit uh, about the role of this vaccine, how it's being deployed? Yes, uh, it's uh, an ex still an experimental vaccine, but in this emergency situation, they have had to use it, and it's proven to be highly effective. It, uh, uh, it's got a 97.5% efficacy rate. So what WHO has been able to do is uh, vaccinate uh, 32,000 healthcare and frontline workers and uh, over 39,500 children aged one to seven years old. Uh, the total number that they vaccinated, and they have 23 teams doing these vaccinations, is over 133,000. And one of the things they do with this is called ring vaccination, uh, because the way you deal with Ebola to try to stop an outbreak, and this uh, was the way it was done in 2014 as well as today, is to, uh, f when there is a person who has Ebola and it's confirmed to have Ebola, then what you want to do is talk to, uh, find all that person's contacts who also could have become infected, and then the contacts of contacts. And by doing uh, 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 vaccinations for those contacts in the context of contacts, as they call ring vaccination, you end up, uh, uh, we believe, uh, bringing the, uh, the number of cases uh, down gradually to the point where it will be zero. And, and one just like wonders how much worse this outbreak would be if not for the vaccinations that are, are being uh, delivered already. I mean, earlier, you know, you discussed how the, the, the challenge of community engagement has been so difficult. And, you know, giving someone a vaccine doesn't really require like behavior change in a way that, you know, changing, you know, generations of practice around burying a loved one does. Um, so, so I, one wonders if like this vaccination and the vaccine campaigns are sort of the answer to this challenge of community engagement that seems to be so problematic. I think there are a fundamental element of it. And in fact, uh, when you say that one wonders what would be the situation if we didn't have the vaccine, it's, it's a very scary thought. And it, we could be much closer to the situation uh, that we had in West Africa in terms of the numbers. Uh, right now, all of the cases except for, I believe, the numbers three have been uh, in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And the three that uh, have been uh, in Uganda, neighboring Uganda, were, were a family that crossed the border from DRC. So it's still a very localized situation. And uh, in, in terms, yeah. of it hasn't really become global at this point. And and that the the fact that it is a localized situation that's you know it's confined to this one region of of the DRC, uh, except for that one cross border incident that you referenced, was principally why a panel of advisors to the health World Health Organization declined just a few days ago to declare this a public health emergency of international concern. Um, that's sort of when we saw a resurgence of new a resurgence of news uh, around Ebola, and at least in like the mainstream media. Can you talk a little bit about that process? What does a public health emergency of international concern mean, and how does 
um, declaring one or declining to declare one affect how the World Health Organization operates and how the international community uh, approaches a, a, a desert, uh, an outbreak like this? Uh, yes, um, uh, I have uh, studied international law and one of the uh, few uh, parts of international law that involve global health, uh, other than the framework convention for tobacco control, uh, is the international health regulations that were approved in 2005. Largely in response to the SARS outbreak, if I recall, right? Correct, correct. And the idea was to ensure that countries were transparent when they had uh, infectious disease outbreaks that uh, could become international and, and eventually global and spread. Uh, and uh, it seems to me that the decision that was made by an emergency review committee and uh, uh, recommending uh, uh, to Dr. Tedros, the Director General, not to declare a public health emergency of international concern uh, last Friday uh, was really a, 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 a decision which uh, could have gone either way, uh, but reasonable minds can differ on this. Uh, it certainly meets the uh, one of the criteria in that it's an extraordinary event. Uh, another criterion is uh, uh, that, that it's uh, there's a risk of international spread, and now there has been uh, spread into Uganda, as I said, but it's still very localized, and the committee did not believe that at this point it's, it, it, it uh, constituted a, a threat beyond the immediate region. Um, and um, they also believed that uh, the, the uh, ongoing response would not necessarily be enhanced by in bringing in the uh, temporary recommendations under the international health regulations. So the, the, uh, there is a, a very robust response, as I said, uh, uh, it's not, and it's not just the World Health Organization. The UN itself has been uh, uh, engaged, and in fact, they've just announced uh, that there's a, 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 a leader in the UN, uh, David Gressley, uh, to be the UN Emergency Ebola Response Coordinator uh, in the Ebola-affected areas of the Democratic Republic of the Congo. So WHO has the technical lead. Uh, the UN has this broader uh, uh, role for its emergency Ebola response coordinator, and uh, other other UN agencies like UNICEF um, and the World Food Program, uh, many uh, inter- uh, non-governmental organizations, uh, including the International Rescue Committee, have been involved, and there is there uh, therefore already a very ro- robust response. Uh, I'm not sure that uh, declaring this a public health emergency of international concern would have made for any more robust response. Uh, yet there's still this funding gap, right, that, that the World Health Organization says it needs to fully fund its its response. Can you talk a little bit about what that gap is and, and how it's impacting the response so far? Yes, to me, that's one of the scary aspects about this, because you can, uh, you can have a... Um, uh, you can tell an international organization, as uh, the world, in a sense, did through many lessons learned exercises and uh, discussions in the WHO governing bodies, you need to create a, a robust emergency response capacity. We can't risk a, a global uh, uh, Ebola outbreak uh, because we came close to that in uh, 2014. And then the, uh, the organization goes ahead and creates that, and then the money 
isn't forthcoming at the levels needed. Uh, WHO uh, had uh, requested funding for the period February until uh, July of this year of $98.4 million, but there's still a gap of over half um, as of a few days ago, a gap of $54.4 million. And uh, I know that for the U.S. government, they've been giving assistance in various ways, but it's often difficult for them to give to broad uh, emergency response funds that are that can be used for uh, various purposes that the uh, uh, their uh, the ability of the U.S. government is often uh, to uh, to give money for specific purposes, and they have been uh, providing uh, funding for the region. But on the whole, the international community hasn't fully funded this effort. And from my perspective, we don't have a choice. Uh, we have to stop this where it is. Uh, it's right now in the Democratic Republic of the Congo and on the border uh, uh, in uh, uh, Uganda, but we can't risk this becoming a global outbreak. And the longer it goes on, the, the uh, greater those risks are. So uh, the funding really needs to be forthcoming. And that was a central message from Dr. Tedros and from this emergency uh, uh, committee and many others over the last several days. And I guess that sort of speaks to what is most concerning to me about these Ebola outbreaks. It's not sort of Ebola itself. Uh, it's the fear of Ebola that could be so profoundly distorting to to policy to to help confront Ebola. I mean, remember, for example, in the 2014 outbreak, you had some U.S. governors uh, who were undermining the global Ebola response by quarantining nurses and doctors when they arrived back in in the states. I remember Governor Cuomo and Governor Christie in New York and New Jersey had their own sort of fear-driven Ebola uh, response were quarantining doctors against the recommendations of the federal government and other health authorities that people that they thought might deter uh, more people from, you know, deploying to the region to, to, to help. And now the concern is also if there's, you know, this international spread, if an emergency is declared, that there might be travel bans and travel warnings against going to the DRC, which again could deter the kind of robust response that's required to actually confront this crisis. No, exactly. Uh, uh, when I was uh, in uh, the State Department Foreign Service, I had a tour of duty for three years as the uh, special representative on avian and pandemic influenza uh, when we were very concerned uh, as a U.S. government that uh, the H5N1 virus could cause a catastrophic uh, pandemic influenza. And there was a lot of modeling done uh, in that period uh, that showed that even in the event of a pandemic influenza, if you closed U.S. borders, you would only gain about one week uh, in terms of an advantage uh, prior to the time when eventually a vaccine could be created to, that would prevent it. Because uh, once you have a, new, a newly uh, mutated virus, you, uh, that's only at that point can you start trying to create a vaccine, and it takes months to do so. So this modeling showed that even if you close your borders, it wouldn't uh, uh, make much difference. Uh, and uh, yet that's an, uh, the natural inclination of some uh, uh, people in uh, government leadership positions. Oh, well, let's close the border. But that really doesn't work. That's what people have concluded. You really can't seal completely seal your border in this day and age. And... Um, 
one of the fears of some people, if this were to be declared a public health emergency of international concern, is that some countries would then uh, take the wrong step and try to close their border rather than do monitoring of potential people who could be uh, uh, infected. Because that's, uh, to my understanding, what the Democratic Republic of the Congo has done for people leaving the Congo was to try to, to monitor them. Uh, and you can tell you can do that through uh, checking if people have fever and things like that. But to, to close the border does more harm than good in almost all situations. So so finally, what sort of indicators will you be looking toward in the coming sort of weeks that would suggest to you whether or not this outbreak is at least trending in the right direction? Well, the, the, the fundamental uh, goal uh, is, of course, to get to zero. But, but to get there, you have to reduce the numbers that are occurring each week. And there were some promising uh, figures at the end of last week, but then there were several uh, ca- cases that came about over the weekend. Uh, and the idea is community by community. And if you uh, are following this closely, you realize the, the situation in the different communities uh, – uh, within uh, North Kivu in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And it's really um, uh, community by community where you have to see uh, and, and get those numbers to be trending downward. That's the fundamental uh, uh, goal here because uh, everybody knows uh, that uh, f- to really succeed, you do have to get the, the number uh, to zero. Uh, well, Ambassador Lang, thank you so much for your time. This is a helpful explanation, I think, of, of where we stand and know how this could actually brought be brought to a heel uh thank you very much mark i really appreciate it all right thank you all for listening thank you to ambassador lang and i also want to point people to a conversation i had with ambassador lang last year about his experience surviving the u.s embassy bombing in tanzania in 1998, he was at the time the acting U.S. ambassador to Tanzania when the U.S. embassy there was bombed by al-Qaeda and was sort of a precursor to the 9-11 attacks. And he kind of describes that experience and the impact that it had on his life and his career and on U.S. diplomacy more broadly. I'll post a link to that uh, conversation from last year, which we had on the 20th anniversary of that bombing. All right, we'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye.